Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, welcome everyone. Good to see you guys. You can talk back to me, it's fine. (laughs) So I wanted to remind you, we're um, on these Agape Nights, and thank you so much for coming tonight. Uh, But at these Agape Nights, one of the things that we're doing, not as the full feature of what we're doing, but we're uh, looking at the passage in uh, John 13 through 17, where Jesus opened up his heart to his disciples um, the night before he went to the cross. It's a, it's a very intimate passage of scripture. And to me, it has the tone and the feel of what I've wanted to see happen here in our uh, Agape Night gatherings. Uh, it's the core team of Jesus. Uh, it's a group of men who at one point will be all in on the mission Uh, They will be key figures in the work that God is doing on earth. And they need to be prepared by their Lord for what that life is going to look like. And uh, his words help frame that context and that setting uh, for them. Uh, So that's what we're going to be going through together as a a church, as a a family, as a body uh, here at Agape Nights. And The way that I'm planning on going through it is not going to be like I go through uh, teachings on Sunday mornings. Uh, You know, that to me is a time where I want to really give you a full exposition of the details, and we're going to go as slow as we need to uh, in the various passages that we're in. Uh, But with Agape Nights, I want to just sort of let the text breathe a little bit and talk to you about some highlight points from each passage uh, of Scripture. Uh, Now, the context of this next section, and we're going to look at John chapter 14, verse uh, 1 through 14, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. But just to remind you, Jesus has uh, told his disciples after he washed their feet that Uh, Peter, and of course, all of them would eventually and ultimately uh, deny him. And this shocked everyone. And then Jesus continued to talk about his departure. That also was shocking to the disciples. Uh, Even though it wasn't the first time Jesus had told them that he was leaving, uh, they still hadn't come to terms with what that meant. What is Jesus's departure? Where is he going? And so They're in a moment of turmoil. And Jesus starts out by saying to them, let not your hearts be troubled. I just want to point out to you that here's the Lord who is going to the cross the next day. The one who has every reason to be troubled and pressured and stressed and overwhelmed. But he's thinking about his disciples. And he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You know, if it was you or me speaking in that moment, we might say something more along the lines of, do you have any idea what I'm about to do? (laughs) 
Do you have any idea how stressful what I'm going to go through is? And what you're facing is nothing in comparison to what I'm about to face. But he's so wonderful and kind to his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let's read, though, the whole passage. He goes on to say, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? You know, some people have a problem with Thomas. I love Thomas. He's just honest. He says the things that oh, the rest of us are thinking. Uh, he, he wants evidence and proof. He's, he's honest with the Lord. This is where I'm at, Lord. You're saying things like we know the way the rest of these guys are nodding their heads and taking notes. and like, hmm, deep point. But we have no idea where you're going. So how do we know the way? Jesus said to him in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. At the center of this whole passage is the statement from Philip. It's an astounding statement, but I think it's the cry of humanity. He says, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. We want to see God, in other words. We want to have an interaction with God. If we, if we could just know God, this God that you're talking about, this Father that you're alluding to, Maybe Philip is thinking in his mind, Lord, I remember when we came to you in a moment of vulnerability, we saw your prayer life, and we knew that whatever we were doing, it was not prayer in comparison to what you were doing. So we said, teach us to pray. And you told us to pray, our Father in heaven. You've been talking about God as a father now for these three years. You've been speaking of him. You've been telling us that it's all about him, that we should be connected to him. You've been pointing us in the Father's direction. And now you're talking about leaving and going to the Father, going to your Father's house with many rooms and preparing a place. But Jesus, we just want to see the Father. 
We just want to know the Father. We just want to have this experience with this God that you have been talking about to us for all of these years. And I think to me, this is the cry of the human heart. Whether a person knows it or not, what we truly desire is to be reconnected to our maker, our God, our Father in heaven. It's what we long for. We might lash out and say that what we really want is for our earthly fathers to treat us better. But the reality is, is that's a mere signpost pointing to the truest connection that humanity desperately needs. I was uh, watching uh, the other day, and you can judge me for this later, but I was watching this uh, show that's really popular right now called Last of Us trying to connect with my college student, film student daughter over this series. Uh, But it's a zombie thriller. It's like a video game thing where this young girl is kind of the hero, and, and she's going through this process trying to get to safety. And they come to this point in this post-apocalyptic world where uh, they find this little outpost of survivors who are starving to death, and uh, they are led by a religious man, uh, or he's posing as a religious man, uh, preaching sermons and things like that. And in a moment of honesty and vulnerability, he tells her, this girl, he says, you know, these people, they need God. These people, they need a heaven. These people, they need a father. And then he looks at her and he says, but you and me, we're not like that. We've moved beyond that. And when he said that, I thought that's what so many in our society and culture think, that the longing for a father is somehow an immature thing that has been globbed onto us by religiosity and that once we can get past our need for a God, then we can truly be satisfied. But Jesus here in this passage is showing us that the exact opposite is true. These 14 verses show us what a life of true and deep satisfaction is all about. There's a destination, there's a way to get there, a path And then there are steps that we take on that path to reach that destination in this passage. The destination, in case you're wondering, is the Father. All throughout this passage, if you just look at it with me, have your Bibles open. I'm going to try to highlight this for you uh, in the Word. But notice how he speaks. In verse 2, what does he talk about? In my Father's house are many rooms. So he's talking about his father's house. Christians like to fixate on what the rooms are. Let's get into the Greek word of what rooms means. It could mean mansions. Maybe I'm going to have a mansion, all that kind of stuff. That's not what Jesus cares about. He's like, it's my father's house. That's where you get to go. There's enough room for you in my father's house is what Jesus is saying. And then he says at the end of verse 2, I'm going to prepare a place for you. A place where? With my Father. And if I go and prepare a place for you in verse 3, I'm going to go that where I am, you may be also. Where will Jesus be? With his Father. And then he says at the end of verse 4, 
you know where I'm going. Where's he going? To the Father. And then in verse 6, Jesus said, in answering Thomas, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says at the end of verse 7, you know him and you have seen him. Who? The Father. And then Philip says his line that I've already been talking about, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says to him in the end of verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the Father is the destination that Jesus has in mind all throughout this passage. What he wants more than anything is for these men to be connected to their Father in heaven. Now, the question is, what's the pathway to get to that destination? Well, the answer to that question should be pretty obvious. The pathway to get there is Jesus. He's the path to the Father all throughout this passage. Uh, First of all, he starts it all off by saying, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's the key to the whole thing. You believe in me, you're going to get the Father. He he says in verse 3, he says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself. Where's he going to take us? To the Father, where he is. Jesus tells them, you know the way. Verse 4. Thomas again says, how can we know the way? And Jesus says the beautiful line, I am the way and the truth and the life. One of the seven I am uh, metaphors or statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, It's not that Jesus is necessarily highlighting all three of those things in equality. I am the way and the truth and the life. He's highlighting the way. That's kind of the one that gets primary top billing in his answer to Thomas because he's asking, how do we get there? And he says, well, I'm the way. But he is the way because he's the truth and he's the life. He's the one that provides life to those who believe. So Jesus is the path. Uh, So much so that when Philip said, show us the Father, Jesus says, how can you say, show me the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is so important for us to receive and understand. If you want to know who God is, what God is like, if you want to understand God, look to Jesus. He is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself. So Jesus is the path. Jesus is the way. But what are the steps that we take along that path? Well, all throughout the passage, really at the beginning and the end, the steps that we take are really simple. It's faith. It's trust. It's leaning upon Jesus. He starts out by saying, believe in God, believe also in me, in verse 1. Then in verse 11, he says, believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Then in verse 12, he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And then in verse 13 and 14, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, and makes these big promises about prayer. There's faith, there's belief, there's confidence in the Lord that is embedded in those statements from Jesus. So the steps that we take 
is the step of faith. Now, when we've been talking about faith in Galatians. And one of the reservations, maybe, or fears that I have in thinking about saving faith is that I think a lot of times we have a tendency to boil that down and reduce our definition of faith is something that is actually not a biblical definition of faith. We will sometimes reduce the definition of faith down to an intellectual confession or assent of belief. But biblical saving faith is so much more than that. It includes that, but it is so much more than that. Biblical saving faith sees what Christ has done on the cross and its heart opens up in utter appreciation for what has been done and then says, I'm throwing my life into your bucket. I'm I'm trusting you completely with, with who I am. I'm trusting you to heal me, to deliver me, to save me, to forgive me. I'm trusting you with my life. And because you have done this for me, and because I'm enamored and in love with who you are as revealed on the cross, I want to respond to you and do whatever you want me to do. So that's the kind of, I think, trust that Jesus is asking for and looking for in our lives. So why am I, why am I sharing these things uh, tonight? You know, the primary thing I want to do tonight is pray a little bit together with you guys and wait on the Lord together with you. Uh, It was wonderful to sing a few songs to the Lord. But I think what I want to say tonight is, as your pastor, I just wanted to express my heart that I think that the, the, the humanity that we are swimming in today is so thirsty for a father. There's just so much pain. There's so much heartache, so much depression and isolation and feelings of despair, self-harm, shame, doubt. And the Father is where Jesus sees the answer. He wants to take us there. He wants to get people there. Uh, this last Sunday, the number one question that I was asked in the lobby was, have you seen the Jesus Revolution? <laughs> and I was, so, I was so happy because I could say yes, I had seen it. And I was happy for that because I don't know what it is. I'm just not really crazy about Christian movies. So a lot of times I have to say no I haven't even seen The Chosen. Somebody told me that the same guy that plays Jesus played Lonnie Frisbee in The Jesus Revolution, and I had no idea. I've heard that The Chosen is amazing, and I recommend it to people even though I haven't seen it. But for me, it's just like one of those things, like the second I read Lord of the Rings, uh, the second I watched Lord of the Rings, reading Lord of the Rings just was kind of a different experience for me. And I have to spend my life studying the Bible, and I don't want to see anybody else's imagery than what I'm seeing when I'm in the text. So that's why I don't watch The Chosen. Uh, I learned when I watched The Passion of the Christ. That just kind of messed with me for a while. Like, that's not what I don't want to see Mel Gibson's version. I want to see <laughs> the Bible version. 
Anyways, I digress. But uh, I did watch it, and I don't know how many of you have, how many of you guys have seen it so far? Okay, good amount. All right. Um, it was an interesting experience for me uh, because, I, you know, I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. My father came from that church, uh, from Pastor Chuck's church in Costa Mesa, not from the version that you see in the movie, but a little bit later once they had a physical building and weren't meeting in a big tent and all that anymore. But I grew up hearing those stories. Um, You know, we had Chuck Smith over for dinner a couple of times in our house. He dedicated this church building to the Lord when we first built it. Um, It's not like I was close with him or anything, but I, I just grew up hearing these stories from my family. And then once I got into ministry... Because I'm a Calvary pastor, I would go to lots of events and conferences where we would gather with other guys, uh, men and women from our tribe. And a lot of the OG pastors who were around back then, they, would, they just loved telling those stories. They loved telling the stories of the baptisms and the movement of the Spirit and meeting in the tent. And they, they just loved telling these stories. It got to the point where it was kind of like, all right, that's like your street cred, you know, like how many... Uh, pastors removed are you from the original time, you know, kind of thing. So I kind of rebelled against that a little bit. And, but, I, but I had always heard those stories. And so it was interesting to watch because, for one, they nailed it. Like the, the stories that I had heard, they were really accurately depicting them. And I think, uh, I think probably that has to do with Greg Laurie's involvement with the film. I know that he was behind the scenes helping them as they put the story together. Um, but a few things stood out to me. One was I was so happy that they gave Lonnie Frisbee so much time in the movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, it won't spoil anything for you, but Pastor Chuck Smith is pastoring a small fledgling church when he just is confused by the hippie generation and says, I'd love to meet a hippie. Uh, the story that as, that as it was told to us over the years was that he and his wife Kay would go to a park and they would just pray for these kids that were just strung out and just have no idea how to reach them, how to impact them, how to talk to them even. And that they were praying that God would open a door for them to just meet one hippie. And uh, so his daughter, his uh, daughter one day brought home a hippie who was named Lonnie Frisbee. And he was a Christian, and he was a radical man. And he was really instrumental in reaching a lot of people for Jesus with Pastor Chuck. And uh, the reason I'm glad that he, he, was, he got so much time in the movie is because when I was kind of first getting started in ministry there in the 90s and the early 2000s, Lonnie's story was a lot of times whitewashed out of our family story. And what you would hear is basically that Chuck moved to Southern California and he was in this beautiful little beach town and uh, he had only two years worth of sermons in his back pocket and he got to the end of his two years of sermons and he, and he realized, I don't want to move like I normally do. I want to stay in this church And then he discovered at that point expositional preaching and he realized I could just do this forever 
in this spot. And the story kind of began to be retold as, and the rest is history. It was expositional preaching that did the job. And this massive thing happened. Um, and that was a huge part of it. And that was a part that they really downplayed in the movie. They didn't really talk about like his ministry methodology. That was huge for this generation that was just trying to learn how to do things. You know, Ed Stetzer is a leading missiologist uh, right now. And uh, I heard recently an interview with him where he said that he feels the exposition, expositional verse-by-verse Bible study is um, one of the major keys to reaching the world today because it's what's, it's what's most needed. It's just a sober, non-trite look into the mysteries of God's word. So I love that. And I've always loved that. That's what I'm trying to devote my life to for so many years. But I, I love that Lonnie was in the story. Um, but it was also strange for me because, and, and I've prayed for Lonnie-like people that God would bring to help me in doing what I do. Just kind of knowing, like, there's a limit to who I can reach. I need, I need crazy people that are filled with the Spirit that are able to do these things that I just couldn't do by myself. But it was also a strange experience for me because, uh, as I said, I've heard those stories for so many years and I've never been able to hear the stories of those Jesus movement revivals without wanting to see God do that again in my generation. And I, and I never have seen him do that. Uh, I've seen great things. God has done beautiful things, but I've never seen that. And I think I remember telling you guys one time out on the lawn back in the middle of COVID, you know, it was after the George Floyd uh, moment and, the, you know, our nation was just imploding. And I shared in the middle of a sermon in Mark that I felt like these are ingredients that are just perfect for God to come in and reach into people's lives. People are just hurting at the end of their rope, frustrated and I mentioned that it, from what I'd heard about what the times were like at the Jesus movement period, that it sounded a lot like what I was witnessing with my own eyes. And so it was a weird experience watching that movie because it depressed me, if I'm being honest. I woke up the next morning, and I just had to journal for a little bit to just kind of get some thoughts out on paper because it was like, God, I, it's beautiful to see like a, a movie about something that, it changed my life. My parents didn't know Jesus until that breakout of God's spirit occurred. I wouldn't be pastoring today if that hadn't, like it set off a chain reaction for so many of us in this room. But I want to see God do something like that again. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. I used to wonder if I loved young people because I was young. Uh, but I'm not young anymore. <laughs> I really love young people. But they confuse me a lot of times. You know, the, this generation coming up, I, I don't have all the answers for them. I... I don't have everything that, that they need. I, I've got the word. I want to help them. I want to reach them. 
But I've just always had that heart. People used to think that I wanted to gear things towards younger people because I just, like, I thought that was cool or I was younger or whatever. It's not that. It's that I just know that if we don't love that next generation, what are we doing? We're just going to get older and just move on. We got to pass it down. We got to be thinking about that next generation. When I was uh, in my early 20s, I, I was leading just like a young adults ministry here in the church. And uh, it was going okay. But one night I was uh, driving out to the church for uh, just one of our gatherings. And I was praying uh, as I was driving. And uh, I have not had many visions in my life, but I had a vision. I didn't crash, praise the Lord, but I had a vision. And the vision that I had was of this sanctuary with tons of young people in it, just lifting up their hands in total surrender and worship and prayer and praise to God. And uh, I've never seen God fulfill that vision, but I, but I felt that it was God showing me just a little glimpse of what he wanted to do. Um, so, you know, for me, I look at a passage like this and I think this is, this is what that generation needs. They need the Father. They need the Father. And the way to the Father is Jesus. And we need to believe. That's what we need to do. We need to believe. You know, some people get all hung up by Jesus' words there at the end about prayer. You know, you pray in my name and, you know, whatever you ask, I'll do it. You know, and they get all like weird about that kind of thing. The whole deal that Jesus is saying is, I did all these works in my Father's name. You guys are going to do greater works than me. People get weird about that too. Like, like it means we're going to do better miracles than Jesus did. That's not, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He rose from the dead. You're not going to do a better miracle than Jesus. And then some people go the other direction, try to totally downplay it. Like, oh, all he's saying is like, you know, we're going to have so much like love and peace and humility, like about amongst millions of people. Like, like all he's saying is you're going to do more things than me because there's just like way more of you. That's not what he's saying. That's not impressive. What he's saying is I'm going to ascend. I'm going to ascend. I mean, the key in the whole thing is when he says, uh, I'm going to go to the Father. <laughs> That's the key. When Jesus went to the Father, he gave the Spirit. And because he went to the Father and we received the Spirit, now we're able to be used by God to reach people and see them actually know Jesus and be converted. People weren't getting converted when Jesus was around. He had to die on the cross for something for them to be converted to. So, that's what he's talking about. You guys are going to go out and evangelize the world. You guys are going to do these things in my power, in my spirit. So that's, I believe, what our world needs. But it won't happen if the church is hostile to that generation. It won't happen if the church expects that generation to act like Christians before they are Christians. And... It won't happen if we're angry with them for any reason. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. 
see you next week.